Now, this is the reading that you've heard this time of year. Some of us for years and years and years. So we know what happens, don't we? And you've been reminded with that little clip. Try a thing differently. Imagine you didn't know what was going to happen. You were one of the early disciples. You believed what Jesus told you. You must go back to Jerusalem and wait. And another helper will come. But what was that going to be like? Was it going to be a warrior? Bringing an army of angels? Was it Jesus coming back? So they had to wait. I'm sure, anticipating, but anxious. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native tongue? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya and Nesarene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among them 
did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. <coughs> Sorry. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Amen. Thanks, Jean. Let's pray, shall we, with Acts chapter 2 open before us. Father in heaven, we thank you for an opportunity now to stop and to reflect on that most remarkable day when you gave your church what it needed most. You gave yourself to your church in the giving of your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that as we gather today, you are present with us and in us as your people. And we pray that as we come to look at this little portion of scripture, would you give us attentiveness in our hearts? Would you help us to understand what is written 
Would you help us to enjoy what we read about the Lord Jesus? And would you help us to live in light of it? That as a church we might stand for you in this world as we seek to carry your gospel to the communities and the people who desperately need to hear it. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we began last week in Acts chapter 1 under the title, Mission Unstoppable. The good news of the gospel, says Jesus, is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And not one thing or one person can stop it. And you see, what we've got before us here in the book of Acts is the historical record of that happening, the initial movement of the gospel out as the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. You may remember the ever-increasing circles that we looked at last week, which give us our shape to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 to 7 is all about the activity of the gospel in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 to 12 is about the gospel breaking those boundaries, going to the suburbs of Judea and the wider area of Samaria. And then Acts chapter 13 to 28 is the continued progress, advancement of the gospel across what we now know as Europe, reaching as far as Rome, the capital of the then modern world. And by implication from there, continuing its journey to the ends of the earth. And of course, we drew that outer circle, didn't we? Because Acts is not the end of the story. The gospel is still on the move. And as a church, we have the privilege of continuing to carry the good news of the gospel in the power of the Spirit to this world, that God would continue to advance his kingdom. And as we come to Acts chapter 2 this morning, what we read here is absolutely pivotal to that progress. Because what was promised in chapter 1, we see fulfilled here in chapter 2. Have a look back at chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Jesus, before he ascended to glory, says in verse 4, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days... You will be baptized with the Spirit. What Jesus promises here in chapter 1 verse 5, we see fulfilled in chapter 2 with the coming, with the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. And with it, the explosion of the gospel and the birth of the New Testament church as we know it. But just a word of warning before we come to Acts chapter 2. There's a lot of ink has been spilt on this chapter in particular, and some of it wrongly, because we fail to read the events of Acts chapter 2 in light of Acts 1 verse 8, which is the verse that gives us our shape to the whole narrative. So let's go back there very quickly, just to remind us of what the whole book of Acts is about, and indeed what Acts chapter 2 is about. Jesus speaking to his apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. This is what Acts chapter 2 is about. It's about the coming of the Spirit, number one, that gives power to the apostles, number two, that they may witness to the risen Jesus, number three, so that the gospel may go to the ends of the earth, number four. And that's what Acts chapter 2 is all about. That's what Pentecost is all about. 
the gospel going forth from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And there's just two headings for us this morning as we break down this chapter. And the first one's this. The primary miracle that we see at Pentecost is that of proclamation. Have a look down at verse 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The reference to Pentecost there in verse 1 is significant for two reasons. Firstly, it was one of three key annual Jewish festivals which brought pilgrims from miles around as they descended upon Jerusalem. And that explains why we have this wide diversity of people groups and languages that you read there in verse 9 and 10. But secondly, Pentecost was a harvest celebration. Not too dissimilar from ours today when the people gather together to celebrate God's abundant provision for his people. And it seems apt, doesn't it, that on this day, God chose to provide most fully and sufficiently for his church, for his people, with the giving of himself when he gave his spirit to be with his people. And so we read in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they're all together probably still praying as they were back in chapter 1, verse 14. And if they were, there is a temporary halt to this prayer meeting. Because what happens in verse 2 and 3, the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, sound like a violent wind. And verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Now, if you were to do a word search on those two words, fire and wind throughout the scriptures, you'd see that they're almost exclusively used as symbols of God's presence with his people. Think back to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when God speaks to Moses. Think of the pillar of cloud and fire with which God led his people out of Egypt across the Red Sea and into the promised land. Think about the contest at the top of Mount Carmel when God descended in fire and burnt up Elijah's sacrifice to show that he was the one true living God. And think about wind throughout the scriptures, the wind with which God dispersed the floodwaters after the mighty judgment in Genesis chapter 8. The wind with which he held back the Red Sea, piled up the waters so that God's people might walk through on dry land. And maybe the clearest reference in John chapter 3, Jesus himself uses wind as an analogy of the Spirit. Just as the wind goes wherever it pleases, so the Spirit will go wherever it pleases. You see, the references to wind and fire talk about significant arrivals of God. This is God doing something significant. Acts chapter 2 is about a significant arrival of God as God comes to be with his his people, not just corporately, but individually. Do you see that in verse 3? As the tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them individually. And the result in verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
The word tongue simply means languages. You'll probably see a little footnote in your Bible. It's like speaking the French tongue. If I can speak the French tongue, which I can't, I could speak the French language. The words tongues and languages and dialect are used interchangeably here in this chapter. Have a look down at verse 6 and 8 as well. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Verse 8, then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Let's be clear that these tongues, these languages that were being spoken are discernible languages that were clearly understood by the people. You see, whatever you make of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and the debate there on tongues, quite clearly here in Acts chapter 2, these are recognizable, intelligible, and discernible languages. People understood. That's the point. And so the question we must ask today is, why does God give this specific gift to his church at this specific point in history? And the answer, of course, is in Acts 1 verse 8, which guides us through the book of Acts so that the gospel might go to the ends of the earth. Because at this point in time, where's the gospel? It's in Jerusalem. If the gospel's going to go to the world, it's got to go out in different languages, right? Because the world is full of different languages. And God, in his infinite wisdom, at this point in history, decides, you know what? I'm not going to build a university for languages and send my apostles through intensive language therapy and then send them out in five years' time to spread the gospel. I'm going to give them a miraculous gift right now so the gospel can go forth from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And you see the impact there, verse 11, look. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues people heard the gospel in languages they could understand you see the primary miracle at pentecost is that of proclamation and i guess the question that we're all left asking today is well what does that look like for me now what does pentecostal christianity look like should we expect to see exactly the same things that we saw here in acts chapter 2 And I'd suggest not. But I do think it's a sad thing that the word Pentecostal has been limited to a specific denomination of the church because Pentecostal Christianity is about God's people being full of the Spirit, speaking God's word to all the world. And in that sense, we're all Pentecostal Christians, right? Alan Esam going to Romania a month ago, preaching the gospel, interpreted by someone there so the Romanians could understand. That's Pentecostal Christianity. The work of Wycliffe. Loads of people in the room have been involved with the work of Wycliffe. Year after year, people grapple with the word of God and translate it into other languages so that people may hear the word of God. They may have access to the gospel in languages that they can understand. That is Pentecostal Christianity. People giving up their houses, selling their houses, going to work in in the streets of New York amongst the gangs there to learn their jargon, to learn their language so that they can communicate the gospel to those people who desperately need to hear it. That is Pentecostal Christianity. I could go on, right? It is all about God's people, with the help of the Spirit, speaking God's word to all the world. 
so that the gospel might go to the nations. The primary miracle at Pentecost is that of proclamation. And the primary message is that of salvation. Let's have a look down verse 12 and verse 13. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Some ask questions, others mock. Familiar? But in response, Peter, as the lead apostle, stands up in verse 14 and gives an explanation for these events, what was happening at Pentecost. And so we have before us recorded probably part of the most effective sermon that has ever been preached in the history of the church, where 3,000 souls come to Christ that day. Have a look at verse 41, the climax of this great sermon. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. That is the impact of Peter preaching the gospel in the power of the Spirit. But what about the content of the gospel? Let's go back to verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In response to the accusation of being drunk, Peter replies with a little quip of his own. Pubs aren't even open, he says. It's nine o'clock in the morning. And being an annual festival, this would also have been a day of fasting for the people. They hadn't eaten or drunk anything. The issue is not drink. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. What was happening at Pentecost is a fulfillment of scripture. And Peter goes on to quote there. You'll see it from verse 17 of Acts 2. That's a quote from Joel 2, verse 28 to 32. And in it... We get a wonderfully simple chronology or time frame, if you like, of the last days. You see, we are, according to Peter in verse 17, in the last days. Do you see it there? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit with the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus and the gift of the spirit. We have entered what the Bible calls the last days. We are in the final chapter of human history. And the return of the Lord Jesus, verse 20, is imminent. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. The Lord Jesus will return in glory just as he ascended in glory. And right now, In this particular chapter of history, we live between those two great bookends, the coming of the Spirit and the return of Christ. And that means two things for God's people, at least, living in these days. Number one, it means that with the coming of the Spirit, we can fully know God. Have a look down again at verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people, Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. 
Prophecy, visions and dreams are Old Testament categories for revelation. It was how God revealed himself in the days of old. He spoke through the prophets, he spoke through dreams and he spoke through visions. But in the Old Testament, that revelation was reserved for only a few people on rare occasions. But Joel says, do you know what? The day is coming when people can know God fully. A full revelation of God. And Peter says at Acts chapter 2, that day has arrived. With the coming of the Spirit of God, we can know him fully. We all can, verse 17. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And that word pour there is more akin to a a tropical downpour than it is a little drizzle. You see, as believers, we have been given access to the full flood of God's revelation in the person of Jesus. Nothing held back. We can know all of God in the person of Christ as the Spirit awakens us to know him and to love him. And so firstly, with the coming of the Spirit, we can know God fully. But as people who know God fully, we are ready to speak about him clearly. Verse 18, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. A prophet is simply God's spokesperson, someone who passes on God's word to the people. And in that sense, we're all prophets. We haven't got new revelation from God. It's all here in the scriptures, in Christ. But we have the timeless truths of the gospel to pass on to this world. And then the wonderful promise, look in verse 21, that always accompanies the gospel message. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who is yet to call upon the name of the Lord. To recognize their sin and to say sorry and to call upon Christ and he alone who can forgive your sin. Oh, to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, we live in the day of proclamation and the primary message is that of salvation. A salvation that is found in Jesus And Jesus alone. The gospel is centered upon him. Have a look. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 23. This man, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 24. But God raised him. Who? Jesus. Verse verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. Do you get it? This Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus. The gospel is all about Christ. Proclamation is all about proclaiming Jesus. And there's four truths very quickly that I want to run through that we want to know and love and adore and proclaim about Jesus. And the first one is there in verse 22. Jesus really lived. You know it. Fellow Israelites, says Peter, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him. 
as you yourselves know. God himself stepped onto the stage of human history 2,000 years ago and God accredited him with miracles and wonders and signs and you cannot deny it. Jesus really lived. You know it. Secondly, Jesus really died. You did it. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, God's sovereignty is not opposed to human responsibility. Yes, this was God's eternal plan of salvation for his son to die on the cross and bear our sin. That we might be reconciled back to him. But that doesn't change the facts. Wicked people nailed him to the cross. Peter says you're responsible. And you know what? We are just as culpable today. We may not have been in that original crowd 2,000 years ago shouting crucify him, crucify him. But as we sing in the great hymn, my sin that held him there, right? Jesus died because of me and because of you Jesus really lived you know it Jesus really died you did it and Jesus really rose you saw it verse 24 but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You cannot keep down the author of life. And Peter goes on to quote from Psalm 16 to prove his point. Have a look at verse 26 and 27. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. It is a psalm spoken by David, but a psalm that points forward to the Lord Jesus. It's a psalm that cannot speak firstly of David because his body did decay, right? You can see his tomb today, Mark's in Israel. He'll have walked past it on the tour of Jerusalem. The tomb of David is still there. David's body did decay. Ultimately, David is looking forward to the Messiah that is to come, whose body will never decay, the author of life of whom death cannot hold. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Jesus really lived. You know it. Jesus really died. You did it. Jesus really rose. Peter says to the people, you saw it. And lastly, Jesus really reigns. You believe it. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. 
Jesus didn't just rise from the dead, but he ascended into glory. He has crushed his enemies, verse 35, making them a footstool for his feet. He's been exalted to the highest place, and now the punchline of all punchlines, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Therefore, let all Long Crendon be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There's the gospel. Verse 36. Jesus is Lord. And the response of the crowd is one we yearn for, isn't it? In our hearts as we think about our nearest and dearest, those that we love, that don't trust Christ as well as the wider world. Is this not what we want in verse 37? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It's strong language. It is to be pierced, to cut to the heart. There is a deep and genuine conviction within the soul They recognize what they have done. They recognize who they are and they recognize who Christ is. What do we do? What do they do? What should people do? Verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A twofold call and a twofold promise. Repent, says Peter. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from a life lived without God, without Christ as your Lord. Flee to the Lord Jesus and be baptized. Do it publicly. Align yourself with Christ and say, I'm his and he's mine. I'm with the Lord Jesus and march into this world aligned next to Christ and say, he's my savior and he's my Lord. Repent and be baptized and the wonderful twofold promise, forgiveness of sin and the gift of the spirit. And you cannot have one without the other. You cannot be forgiven and not have the spirit. And you cannot have the spirit without being forgiven. Verse 40 and 41, as we bring things to a close, this is just a snapshot of the sermon. With many other words, he warned them And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, no doubt you will be very different to the Apostle Peter in makeup, in personality. But the question I leave you with in your own unique way, the way God has set you up. Will you, will we be a people who both warn and plead? Not just lay some facts down there and warn people, but plead with them because our hearts break for this world. That we would plead with people that they would turn to Christ. They would flee to him and save themselves from this corrupt generation. Because the promise stands for eternity. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and today is the day of salvation let's pray father in heaven we want to be a people who love you who take your word seriously 
who desperately love the world around us. We want to walk into this world with boldness and with gentleness. Lord, by the help of your spirit in our hearts, help us to be a people who take your word to all the world. We long to see your kingdom built here in Long Crendon. We want to see people come to that point of trusting the Lord Jesus for themselves. And we ask you for that, Lord. We thank you that we have the same spirit in our hearts. Thank you that we have the same gospel on our lips. Thank you that we have the same loving Heavenly Father in glory who awaits the redemption of all people. We commit our lives to you now, Lord Jesus, and we pray that in your great plan and purpose, you would choose to use us as individuals and us as a church to continue to see your gospel move to every single corner of this globe and every single street of our community. And we pray all these things for his glory. Amen.